0: I am your host, Tom Wright, and with me today is Dr. Lee Shulman, Professor and Head of Section of Reproductive Genetics in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, and we will be discussing new prenatal screening choices. Dr. Shulman, welcome to ReachMD. It's great to be here today, Tom. Thank you. Oh, we're delighted to have you. First question I got for you this morning... What is the difference between prenatal screening and diagnosis?
1: You know, a lot of folks who, who take care of obstetrical patients frequently uh, not so much confuse the two issues, but but basically use language that they feel can describe both. And in fact, they're two very different processes. Very simply, screening is uh, an algorithm that we apply to a population to detect people who may be at increased risk. And Diagnosis is something that we apply to an individual to determine whether or not that fetus is normal or abnormal. A lot of times, providers will say that their screening was normal. Uh, I don't want to sound like a 12th grade English teacher, but screening is either positive or negative. Um, and that's really what we have used, not just in prenatal care, but really in, in general health care. What has happened and what we're talking about today is that the screening has gotten much, much better as far as ability to detect and, and false negative rates and a variety of other things, so that the, it has moved closer to being having diagnostic uh, characteristics. But as I'll also go over, it still is not a diagnostic test, and there are still issues that uh, are fraught with concern for clinicians and patients alike.
0: Interesting. Who are you offering screening to and who are you offering diagnostic testing? Because they must be different populations.
1: Well, here's the interesting thing. The actual answer to that is they're not. And uh, that all came about in the late 2007-08 when ACOG uh, issued their missive that screening and diagnosis needs to be offered to all women. Essentially, we discuss with women or providers should discuss with women the limitations of screening, potentially the, the small risks associated with diagnostic testing, and allow that woman uh, to make up her mind based on her a priori risk, her risk for having a fetus with a detectable problem like Down syndrome or potentially Mendelian disorders. That makes things rather uh, complicated and rather time-consuming. I'm an OBGYN geneticist, so this is in my uh, sort of wheelhouse, but for the obstetrical provider, this can be a, a daunting task. And, So a lot have stayed within the old paradigm of women who are essentially 35 and older are offered diagnostic testing, those below are offered screening. Um, And I'm not saying that's a good way to approach it, but that was the older approach. Uh, And women need to know that that both screening and diagnosis is available to them, uh, depending on what they want to know about their pregnancy, everything from nothing uh, to as much as they can potentially learn from their pregnancy.
0: There are a number of new screening tests which are available. How do they differ from the older, more conventional screening tests? So the older
1: screening algorithm uh, was a blood test that looked at proteins, uh, and I'll say the term surrogate biomarkers. This was primarily done as a combination in the first and second trimester. And it allowed us to adjust the risk for Down syndrome, trisomy 18, possibly trisomy 13. And so it was very, very limited in what we could do. We eventually got detection rates to be in the low 90s, uh, 92, 93, 94 percent. But it was a somewhat complicated algorithm. It involved two blood draws in the first and second trimester. It involved measuring the nuchal translucency. Uh, which is uh, also fraught with issues for providers and quality control people. Uh, And so it required several visits, and it was rather costly. But it clearly was better than the older alpha-fetoprotein and triple and quad screens. The new prenatal screens are, in fact, a blood test, but they are very much associated with one blood draw, and that's it. And they rely on a technology called circulating cell-free nucleic acid technology. While it is still not something that detects specifically fetal DNA, it is clearly uh, something that is far closer to evaluating the actual issue of the abnormality, which is extra-chromosomal material.
0: So you've talked a little bit about the new technology. Exactly how do they use this
1: Well, first of all, there are, uh, depending on where you are in the United States or elsewhere in the world, there are four commercially available products. And each of them has its own algorithm, but they essentially use the same concept, which is, and and to me it's a rather fascinating uh, uh, concept. Uh, This was based on work that was originally done by Dennis Lowe in Hong Kong. And what they were able to show is that you and I, if we were to look at circulating cell-free nucleic acid. Approximately 1.36% of that nucleic acid would be 21-specific, meaning cells go through their life cycle, they break up, and they shower the bloodstream with their nucleic acid. If you take a look at all that nucleic acid, based on the size of chromosome 21, say, 1.36% of all the nucleic acid is associated with pieces from chromosome 21. What Dennis was able to eventually develop was if that woman who has 1.3% of her own nucleic acid, is carrying a fetus, 10% approximately of the circulating cell free nucleic acid is fetal. So if she's 1.36%, she has two chromosome 21s, her fetus has two chromosome 21s, the ratio is 1.36%. But through this mathematical algorithm, if she's carrying a fetus with three chromosome 21s, And when you measure her ratio in her bloodstream, her ratio increases from 1.36% to 1.44%. And it's a very small difference, but eventually the hardware and the software were developed that could consistently differentiate that. And that is the basis of this technology, looking at changed ratios. So we're not actually identifying specific fetal DNA. We're not finding, which I think many of us in the field want to do, is to find that fetal cell that has the abnormal complement. But we're looking at changes in ratio based on the circulating self nucleic acid in mom's blood, and that 10% of that is from the fetus.
0: Very interesting. Quite informative. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reach MD, and I am your host, Tom Wright. Joining me is Dr. Lee Schulman, and we are discussing new prenatal screening choices. So, Lee, who should be offered the new screening test? Well, th-
1: this is getting to be a, a bit of a challenging issue because... As opposed to the development of other screening tests in the past, and I'll actually throw in HPV since you're interviewing me today, uh, these were mostly done in incredibly large, robust prospective trials. And that really has not been the case here. Um, We have relatively smaller validation studies, and in some cases, little to no validation data. So... The American College, as well as others, including most of us in the field of prenatal screening and diagnosis, have looked at the validation data and said that, fine, uh, we have validation data for what we call the high-risk woman, a woman who's over the age of 35, a woman who's had a previous uh, fetus with trisomy 21, 18, or 13, a woman with an abnormal ultrasound, or a woman with a uh, positive, I won't say abnormal, but a positive conventional screening acid. While I think all of us would agree that this is likely going to be a far better screening approach for the erstwhile low-risk woman, we just don't have the data. And some companies are accepting samples, some aren't. Uh, but for the most part, the American College and most of the uh, genetic centers have limited the use of this technology to that group of women that we'll call high risk, that at increased risk for aneuploidy. So the couple, she they're carrying a, a Gene mutation for both occurring or gene mutation assisted cystic fibrosis, it's not amenable for this. Because all this technology will do will be to assess risk for chromosomes 21, 18, and 13, and possibly X and Y. So for now, we and most others limit the offering of the screening test to so that increased
0: risk woman. You talk about their multiple commercial tests. Is there a difference between the different commercially available tests?
1: So for full transparency, I, I consult for two out of the four companies, possibly now three out of the four companies. And um, in the spirit of full transparency, the answer is I don't know. Uh, if there are differences, they're small. And if there are differences, they likely relate to the actual mathematical algorithm that's applied to the analysis of the circulating self freeze. So it's basically the hardware is very similar between all of them, it's the software that is the sort of the devil is in the details in that. Uh, so the formal answer to the question is, since we've not had no head-to-head trial, we really don't know. But clearly all four of these screening modalities provides for a far greater rate of detection and a far lower rate of screen positivity in a ostensibly normal pregnancy.
0: All of which sounds like it's a very positive thing. Yes. So what's going to be the future of CCFNA Well,
1: there are really two things. I think the most important first step to the future is getting data that shows us how this works in that low-risk population. Uh, The old statement, why do we rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. Well, if you're looking to expand screening, the expansion of the screening is going to be in the low-risk population. The high-risk population is perhaps 5 maybe 8% of the uh, total obstetrical community. and again, I'll reiterate, I have no doubt that these modalities are not considerably better, profoundly better than what we have. And I always like to say, uh, when I'm giving a lecture on this, I always ask, does anyone know what the positive predictive value of the sequential screen is the nucle and that, and everyone says, "50, 60, 70 percent?" The answer is three percent. I mean, it's the positive predictive value of sequential screening is three percent. Is this greater than three percent? Absolutely. they're great. Any of the four are greater than three percent. But as the person sitting there counseling the patient, I need to know whether that positive predictive value is 50% or 80% or 90%. And until you know what to tell patients, it really is irresponsible to offer a test while we all believe it's better, that we really don't know what the parameters are. So I think first and foremost, we'll see this in the next 12, maybe 24 months applied to a low-risk population. Whether ACOG and other organizations support it, I'm not really sure. We started using it in Northwestern before the ACOG affirmation of its use. Uh, but I think it'll, we'll start using the lowest population. Where I think the, the real future is, is which we don't know, which is a far more problematic issue, is how much more comprehensive will this testing be? You know, clearly right now it's limited to the three most common chromosome abnormalities, the reason why it's limited to those three is those were the easiest, meaning the highest frequency, that we could do appropriate validation data. Well, when you start going after 21, 18, and 13 in X and Y, you really have a precipitous fall in frequency. And so to do appropriate validation studies it's going to take hundreds of thousands of women, not just thousands of women. These companies are, again, not supported by federal-funded studies. A lot of them are venture capital-supported, and they just don't have the financial wherewithal to sponsor that kind of large prospective study. So the question is, will those validation data become available? Uh, If they do, will they show to be equally as effective in screening? And I think while I think some of the people think this will eventually uh, replace diagnosis, it won't replace diagnosis based on being as good as diagnosis. It will replace diagnosis if there is a decision made powers that be that we don't need to have as comprehensive an assessment of the fetus. Now, I personally don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I am more interested in other technologies like the erstwhile fetal cell and maternal circulation or maternal cervix. Uh, possibly that may be the approach, because once we do consistently get fetal cells from mom, uh, then we are, for the most part, done with invasive testing. And since I'm at the end of the, my professional career, that's, in a sense, okay, Uh, But that, for me, is where we're going to need to take away the needles and the catheters and be able to provide effective non-invasive prenatal screening and testing.
0: How far away do you think we are from being able to get specific fetal cells out of the circulation?
1: Well, I have old 35-millimeter slides from the late 1980s that said this was going to happen in the next five years. Uh, I haven't even bothered putting them into my PowerPoint presentations. I really don't know. There have been several companies that have come and gone, some with promising. Uh, the issue with, we know there are fetal cells in maternal blood because since they're circulating cell-free nucleic acid, it has to come from somewhere, and it comes, and it's likely trophoblastic. Work that I did when I was at the University of Tennessee looked at nucleated red blood cells. I just don't think they're either there in enough numbers or, or for as long of a period of time. So if I had a bet on a cell type, it's going to be a trophoblast problem with trophoblasts is they don't consistently have a characteristic chromosome complement of the fetus. A lot of times you get a trophoblastic cell, which we know is involved in invading the placenta into the uterus. So it's much like a, almost like a malignant cell. And we have normal trophoblasts that have 92 chromosomes or whatever. But we have the diagnostic capacity with microarrays and single-cell analyses that are readily done in a variety of cell types, somebody's got to get out there and develop a consistent approach to identifying and capturing them from maternal blood. And so five years, maybe then they'll have us back and we'll be able to do this again in five years, but uh, I think that whereas I have more confidence in making a more comprehensive cell-free screen... I don't have really any confidence that this is in the near future.
0: Dr. Schulman, thank you so much for being with ReachMD today.
1: It's great to see you, Tom, and it was great to be here with you today.
0: I'm your host, Tom Wright, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.